Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the book of Genesis, chapter one. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome for our discussion of Genesis, chapter one. Creation, wow. Creation tells a story. In the beginning, the first words of the Bible, in the beginning. There's the Hebrew, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So God, one of his titles is creator. And in the catechism 279, it says the begin in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Holy scripture begins with these solemn words and the profession of faith takes them up when it confesses God, the father almighty is creator of heaven and earth in the apostles creed. And the Nicene creed says he created all that is seen and unseen. Now, the Apostles' Creed is our earliest creed. We are an apostolic church. It's one of the markers of the church. The church is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. It's from the 12 apostles. And it was an oral creed inspired by the Holy Spirit. And each of the 12 contributed an article of faith. So it was called the Apostles' Creed. It was written orally. They found a written copy in 390 AD. Uh, the Archbishop Ambrose, who trained Augustine in Milan, Italy, there was a written copy of the Apostles' Creed in 390 at a church synod. The Nicene Creed came in 325. It was the first ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, which met in ancient Nicaea. It's now Turkey, but it was called for by Emperor Constantine I, who legalized Christianity, the Roman Emperor Constantine. His mother was who? Helen. Yes, good. And he presided over that session. He was an unbaptized catechumen at the time. And he took part in those discussions. They were hoping that a general council of the church could solve the problem created in the Eastern church by Arianism. It was a heresy suggested by Arius of Alexandria that affirmed that Christ is not divine, but a created being. And that was a heresy. And the Nicene church concluded it was a heresy. God is the creator of heaven and earth of all things seen and unseen. And so that's one of his titles. He's a creator God, and he's always creating. He's recreating us right now. All of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen. And you know, the seen is pretty easy because seeing is believing. You see something, you know it's true. But the unseen is, I mean, sometimes you don't even think about the unseen because it's unseen. And Hebrews 11 tells us that's what faith is. Faith is confidence in what we hope for an assurance about what we do not see, to be assured of something we do not see. And this is what the ancients were commended for. And in this chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, uh, we see a, a, a great hall of faith. God created visible and invisible. And is God's creation enough? 
Is that enough? If all you knew was creation, creation is a doctrine unto itself. And it's important to know the doctrine of creation so we can further understand the doctrine of redemption. But right off the bat, Paul starts with the doctrine of creation. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, God's, namely his eternal power and deity, has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made that have been created. So you can go on your vacation, you go to the mountains or the river, you see God present in his beauty in nature and it's a transcendent to God. So creation itself speaks loudly about the existence of God. So that they, people, are without excuse, Paul says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. They became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man or birds or animals or reptiles. And he's referring there to like Roman mythology and, and the different gods. And, and they took the almighty God that could be known through creation and made him into everything else created by men. So God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So even in our culture today, it sometimes seems like God is a big giant woolly mammoth in our secular culture. And what does that mean? What happened to them? Yeah. Is God on his way to extinction in our culture today? Like in Rome, like in Athens, those cities fell. St. Paul went to Athens, and he went in Acts 17 to Athens, Greece, and he went to the top of the Acropolis, and he was going to address the Greek intellectuals, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what does he do? He goes all the way back to the doctrine of creation, not the doctrine of redemption. He, he hits them first with the doctrine of creation. He stands in the middle of the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. And you guys are really spiritual. For I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. And I found there was an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown that's the God I want to proclaim to you. I know him. I know who that is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He's appealing to creation. He does not live in shrines made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. That's the creation doctrine. And he made from one every nation of men, to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel after him and find him. Yet he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So this sermon was going really, really good. Paul had him eaten right out of his hand. These intellectual Greeks, they were all over this creation doctrine. They loved it. Then Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone or a representation of art or the imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world 
in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Oh, it's going so well up until then. You know, now he has to bring up this man who's risen from the dead, and and he's losing him here. It's like, oh boy. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them started mocking, and others said, ah, we'll hear you again later about this. And they sent him away. They sent Paul away from there. So they liked the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of redemption they weren't ready for. Some of them were Dionysius and Demarius, a woman, and a few others went, but not the deep-seated Greek intellectuals. No way, uh-uh, not the Stoics, not the Epicureans. Since the beginning... The Christian faith has been challenged by responses to the questions of origin that differ from its own. Some philosophers say that everything is God. The world is God. The development of the world is the development of God. That's called pantheism, and that's not correct. Others have affirmed the existence of two eternal principles, good and evil, light and darkness, locked in permanent conflict. That's called dualism or Manichaeism. That's not correct. Some say that the world, at least the physical world, they see it as evil because it's a product of the fall and that is to be rejected or left behind. That's Gnosticism and that's not correct. Others admit that the world was made by a God, but he's like a watchmaker God who after you make the watch, you abandon it unto itself. That's called deism, and that's not correct. Some reject any transcendent origin of the world, but see it merely as an interplay of matter that has always existed, and that's called materialism, and that's not correct. All these attempts to explain bear witness to the permanence and the universality of the question of origins, an inquiry that is distinctively human. So all of you in this room, all of us in this room, have thought of these bigger than life questions. At some point in our life, we wondered about these five very human questions. Where do we come from? Right? Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is our origin? What is our end? And where does everything that exists come from? And where is it going? These are basic, fundamental questions the human mind wants to know. The Catechism at 286 says that human intelligence is surely already capable of finding a response to the question of origins. The existence of God, the Creator, can be known with certainty through His works. By the light of human reason, even if this knowledge is often obscured and disfigured by error. So the human heart knows. When you see creation, you know there is a God. That's a gift that God gave us. We know from the doctrine of creation that he exists. No one else is capable of making these things. A DNA chain? No way. This is why faith comes to confirm an enlightened reason in the correct understanding of this truth. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. And that's taken right from Hebrews 11, verse 3. God created out of nothing. The Latin is ex nihilo. Uh, and in that faith hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, we read this line, that women received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release, that they might rise again to a better life. Who is this woman? 
Who is this woman that they're talking about in the Hebrews Hall of Fame? Woman who received their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. Who is that woman? It's Saint Salomonia, the mother of the Holy Seven Maccabees martyred brothers. Commemorated on August 1st. A Hebrew mother in 2 Maccabees 7. If you're using a Protestant Bible, you don't have the book of Maccabees. It was taken out after the Reformation, seven books. But these seven brothers were all martyred. Their names are Abim, Antonius, Gurias, Eleazar, Eusebonus, Elemis, and Marcellus, and their mother, Salomonia, and their teacher, Old Eleazar. And each of these seven sons suffered martyrdom for the Old Covenant in 166 BC, 160 years before Jesus Christ came, 166 BC, under the Syrian king Antioch IV. And he loved all things Greek and all the Hellenistic customs, and he held the Jewish customs in contempt. And he did everything possible to turn the Jews away from the law of Moses, away from their covenant with God. He desecrated their holy temple. He put a great big statue of Zeus in the holy of holies of the almighty God and forced the Jews to worship it. Eleazar was 90 years old, a Jewish elder, a scribe who taught these boys, and he was brought to trial because he remained faithful to Mosaic law, and he suffered torture and death at Jerusalem. The seven boys were Eleazar's disciples. He was their rabbi, their teacher. He, they were his followers. They were brought to trial in Antioch by King Antiochus. And they fearlessly acknowledged themselves as followers of the one true God of Israel. And they refused to eat pork, which was forbidden by the Mosaic law. The oldest brother acted as the spokesman for the rest, saying that they would rather die than break God's law. His tongue was cut out. He was scalped. His hands were cut off. His feet were cut off in front of all the boys and their mother. Then they heated up a large cauldron of oil, a large frying pan. This is right in the scriptures. It was heated up and they all watched as he offered his soul to God and they fried him up in the frying pan. The next five brothers were tortured one after another right in front of their mother. The seventh, her youngest baby boy, was the last one left alive and King Antiochus suggested to Salomonia that she persuade her son to obey the king so that her last son, her only son, could be spared. Instead, in her own language, the brave mother with manly courage told him to imitate the courage of his brothers. Her youngest son upbraided the king, and he was tortured even more cruelly than any of the other boys, right before her very eyes. After all seven had died, Saint Salomonia stood over their bodies. She raised up her hands in praise to God, and she died. Now you can read more about that in 2 Maccabees 7 to 10. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. But the faith of that woman inspired Judas Maccabeus and his brothers to lead a revolt against the Syrian king Antioch Epiphanes. And with God's help, they gained victory. They purified the holy temple of God in Jerusalem and they threw down the pagan altars. So the question is, how could this mother have such manly courage? How could she have such faith? And Hebrews tells us she had confidence in what was hoped for and assurance about what she did not see. And I love this icon of her because what she saw in the future was what? Messiah. 
the incarnation, a Messiah was coming. And what she believed in, she could not see. And she's a very brave type of, she's a type of, to me, a type of Mary. Because I was praying with this scripture on Sunday, which was the feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. And what happened to her? I have this icon in my room of Our Lady of Sorrows with the seven arrows in her heart. But this mother in the Old Testament had seven arrows in her heart. I put the name of each son on one of the arrows. She watched each son die for the faith. She's a a prototype of this Mary who also had seven sorrows, the prophecy of Simeon, the flight into Egypt, the loss of Jesus in the temple, the meeting of Jesus and Mary on the way to the cross, the crucifixion, the deposition of the body of Christ off the cross, and the burial of Jesus. That's what you'll see if you go to Jerusalem, right by where Jesus died. The mother of God with seven swords in her heart. The seventh sword was the final burial of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? She's the last one in the tomb with him, and they're they're wanting to roll the stone over the tomb and seal it up, and her final goodbye her final grief, her final sorrow. And St. Ignatius of Loyola writes that he believes Jesus Christ first appeared to Mary on Easter morning, his own mother. It's not in the scriptures, but in his prayer time, that's what he imagined, that he went to her first. And he writes that Jesus first appeared to the Virgin Mary. This, although is not said in scripture, but it is included in the saying that he appeared to so many others. Because scripture supposes that we have understanding as it is written, are you also without understanding? So her sorrow that morning was turned to complete joy whenever she recognized the knowledge of the resurrection of her son from death. And so the mother of seven sorrows is also hoping in this resurrection power. One day Messiah will come. There's more to life than this life. She knew that deep in her heart. She hopes for something that she cannot see. And she exhibits incredible faith. A lady of seven sorrows and seven is a perfection of sorrow turned to joy. So her seven sons and her seven sorrows. And then I found this picture of her with her sons all in white robes with olive branches, and which we know that John's letter, Revelation chapter 6, he opened the fifth seal and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for witness that they had bore. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before thou wilt judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the blood of the martyrs. My son, she said to that last little seventh son, my son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb. I nursed you for three years and I have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beseech you, my child, to look at heaven and earth and see everything that is in them. What does she appeal to? Creation doctrine. This last son, she wants him to be martyred too. She wants him to die for the Lord. Look at heaven and earth and see everything that he has made and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. That's ex nihilo. He created out of nothing. She is appealing just like Paul to creation doctrine. 
In this time of greatest need, it's ex nihilo in the Hebrew. Out of nothing, God created you, my son. Thus all mankind comes into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that the mercy of God, that I may get you back again with your brothers. She knows there's life after death. This is Old Testament, 166 BC. She believed in the resurrection of the dead. And she believes that the next life is eternal and more important than the current present life. She has eternal perspective. That's great faith. And St. Ambrose of Milan said of her, the words of the holy woman return to our minds who said to her sons, I gave birth to you and poured out my milk for you. Do not lose your nobility. What's their nobility? They're just a poor family. What's their nobility? Their nobility is their deepest identity that they are a beloved son of God. Do not break the covenant of God's love with you. They will have more dignity if they die a martyr's death than if they eat the pork and break the covenant of God. Other mothers, says Ambrose, other mothers are accustomed to pull their children away from martyrdom, not to exhort them to martyrdom. But she thought that maternal love consisted in this, in persuading her sons to gain for themselves an eternal life rather than an earthly life. How many of you would want your son to be killed for the sake of the kingdom of God? Moms? One, you'll give one kid, do you give two? Three, going three, four, who'll give me five, who'll give me five, who'll give me six, six, seven, all seven. And thus the pious mother watched the torment of her sons, but the sons were not inferior to such a mother. They urged each other on, speaking with one single desire, and I say like an unfurling of their souls in a battle line, says Ambrose. They knew God through his creation, through his covenantal love, and they believed in their nobility as a beloved son of God. They were sure of it. This is why I told my kids from preschool on, whenever they left the house, remember who you are. I say, who are you? I'm a beloved child of God. <laughs> Don't forget it. And when they got in trouble in high school, when they called from college, they were in trouble. What did I ask them? Who are you? I'm a child of the king. This is beneath your dignity as a beloved son of the king. Who are you? Don't lose your nobility. Don't lose your dignity as a beloved child of God. In the beginning, God. Hmm. So God had to exist before the beginning in order to create the beginning, right? God exists outside of time and space. And he who says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He's outside of time. He has no beginning and no end. Our minds are finite. His is infinite. We can't understand it. We say in the creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. He creates out of nothingness. Ex nihilo, without form and void, nothingness. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering, was moving over the face of the water. Now, did you get that? And 
God said. And God said. And God said. And in saying, God spoke the word. And the word started it all. God's word, God's word is a powerful, powerful, powerful word. And John tells us that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Who's the word? He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through Jesus. And without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. So all things were created through the word, through Jesus Christ. So now we got two persons of the Trinity there. And we say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God. Begotten. He's not created. He's not made. The only begotten son of God, born of the father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. In case you didn't get the first God from God, then we say again, true God from true God begotten, in case you didn't get the first one, that he's not created, he's begotten, not made, not created, and he's consubstantial. That was a new big word we changed in the missile a few years back, and we were all like, what is that? <laughs> he's consubstantial. He's one and the same with the Father. Through him, all things were made. Hmm. So now we don't just have God creator, we have God speaking a word, and through that word, all things were created, and that word is Jesus Christ. And then we have the Spirit of God was already moving and hovering over the face of the water. So right in the first line of the Bible, we have the entire Trinity, and the Jews don't recognize it, and it's their Hebrew scripture, because they say God is one. But we know that God is three, three in one. So there's a lot of theology right in the very first sentence of the Bible, and it includes the Trinity. And we say about the Holy Spirit that he's the Lord and the giver of life. And he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son, he is glorified and adored. So the Spirit of God is moving over the face of the water. You have the whole Trinity lined up there. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all active in the act of creating. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we know that Jesus is called light from light. Hmm. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, capital D, in the RSVCE. Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition is a capital D on day. And I thought, hmm, anytime you see that, perk up. And the darkness he called night, capital N, as if it's a proper name. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Okay, first day over, done, first day. But wait a minute, he creates light on the first day, then there'll be water, then there'll be earth, then there'll be sun, moon, and stars. Wait a minute, there's light before there's the sun. Let's look at the order of the days. Day one, light, day two, water, day three, earth, day four, sun, day five, fish and, and birds, day six, beasts, and then God rests on day seven. We'll get to that next week. That was part one of the book of Genesis, chapter one, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.